And that theme continues today in the latter part of chapter 14. Although um, I'm gonna change the words a little bit, the the nuance here in chapter 14 to, to talk about participation and order. Participation and order. So there's a, a participation, diverse participation within the body of Christ that is connected to diversity, these different parts of the body of Christ participating in the worship of the Lord when we get together. But also there's an order there that reflects the unity. We are one. We are a gathered people of God. There is a unity and there is an order here as well. And, and so this theme flows through these verses. First, let me talk about the participation. Look at verse 26 here. When Paul says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. The picture that Paul paints of the church, of the early church when they gathered together was of a highly participatory worship service. People got involved. It wasn't just like one person standing up here talking the entire time, or maybe one person up here doing worship or something like that, but there was a lot of participation within this church. Um, You know, when you come together, each one has a a hymn. Now, we we don't exactly know what that means. Uh, We don't know what a lesson means. These could have been like spontaneous the Holy Spirit gave these things, or, or it might not have been. We're not totally sure, but maybe it did look like somebody singing a song on their heart to the Lord, or like the church that I, I became a Christian in back in high school. We would have a time where we sat together and we worshiped, and we would just let people choose a song to sing. Hey, can we sing that one? Whatever was on people's hearts, maybe in some way it was like God prompting that. It could have been like that, or, or maybe, you know, it was something different. A lesson, maybe spontaneously somebody would come and say, hey, let me, you know, expound a little bit upon this proverb here as a teaching, and God would do that. Maybe it was somebody feeling led by the Spirit of God to prepare a teaching during the week for that Sunday. We don't know. We're not totally sure. But given that revelation, tongue, and interpretation, the rest of the list is spontaneous, it's possible that these things were spontaneous as well. Now, the the main point here, the main thing that I want us to see is how much participation there was within the church. Church was not primarily something that you came and you watched, that you were just a spectator in, but it was something that people participated in through the gifts and the ways that the Holy Spirit was moving through them. And Paul and God, speaking through Paul, cared so much about this that look at what he says in verse 27. He says, if there's somebody speaking in tongues, let there only be two or three at most. Paul puts this artificial constraint on the number of people that can get up and speak in tongues. Why does he do that? That seems so like artificial, superficial. I mean, this is a spirit thing going on here, Paul. Why would you do that? Probably because he's trying to say, listen, tongues is great, but it's not the only thing. We want to make room for all the different gifts of God. We want to make room for God to move in our worship gathering in many different ways. So let's limit it to about two or three people speaking in tongues. He limits that. Now, he does the same thing with prophecy as well. 
Let two or three prophets speak. Why does he say that? So that there's no one prophet that hogs the mic. (laughs) You know, getting up there, hogging the mic. Or an hour where all they do is prophesy and there's no room for other things. But there are so many other things, not even just the hymns and the teachings, spontaneous or, or whatnot, but prayers, time to pray together. Or what about the reading, the public reading of scripture? Or the Lord's Supper, communion, doing that, or or baptizing, or how about the prepared teaching that was done in advance, the thing that I work on during the week. There are so many different things that are not listed here. I think what Paul is saying is, hey, let's keep it to two or three prophecies so that everybody has a chance. Look at what, even in verse 30, this is crazy here. Paul says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Now, what, what is that? There, it seems like in some way, if somebody is there prophesying and there's somebody else sitting there and somebody else feels like, hey, I, I think God is giving me a word for the congregation, that person was in some way supposed to signal to the, to the man or woman who was prophesying. Maybe the person stood up you know, to kind of say, hey, I got something to say too. The first one was supposed to stop prophesying and then the next one goes. It's almost like, like God cares so much about participation. He, he's like, hey, you're all going to have a turn. Okay, it's like, you know, like school, like, Billy, you've talked enough now. Let's give the rest of the class a turn, right? A chance. Even in something as spiritual as prophecy, God is working through the body, through multiple people, and the Spirit of God can move around in that way. It's, it's just, it can seem so foreign to us, but... It just goes to show, I think, how much God is concerned about the body of Christ, about the church participating together in the worship of God. Now, man, things can look so different nowadays. Now, I I know there are churches in this world that may may do this and may be highly participatory, and that's awesome, but many, many churches don't. Especially churches kind of in the Western world. And I, you know, I think part of the reason for this is. You know, ever since Constantine, the, the, the Roman emperor, had Christianity become the official religion of the, the Roman Empire, and it became the Holy Roman Empire, from that point on, Christianity just like, you know, like it exploded in popularity, right? Before then, it wasn't good to be a Christian in the eyes of the world. It, w- it didn't help you get ahead in life. It led to persecution. It required a lot of sacrifice. Once Constantine became a Christian, suddenly being a Christian meant you could move up in society and a lot more people, even without genuine faith, wanted to become Christians. And as the church grew and they built these massive buildings to worship God in, there became a greater divide between the clergy, the, the pastors, the priests, and the lay people. And it became more and more divided where the priests were the ones who actually did the ministry and the lady came, the lay people came and and more and more were inactive and just watched. I mean, eventually it came to the point where the Bible was in Latin and nobody could read the Bible except the clergy. That's how divided things got. And, And I think that there is still a vestige of this even within the church today, especially the church in the West where you know, we, we sometimes have this mentality, oh, you know, pastor, Pastor Ulysses, or, or missionaries, or, or people like a Billy Graham evangelist, they're the people that really go out there and do the ministry. I primarily come and attend. 
And if I attended church, I did my thing. I did what I needed to do. But, but the church here is so participatory here in what we see in the early church. Um, this is also why as much as I love my brothers and sisters in megachurches, and I know some wonderful people in megachurches who love the Lord and are doing wonderful work for the Lord, I, I, I personally, I think it's difficult to have participation like what we see in the Bible here. I mean, if you have a 10,000-person church, you're still only going to have one person at a time up there preaching or teaching. How many people can you have preaching and teaching? You just can't have that many. But if you had 100 churches with 100 people, you could at least have 100 different people using their gifts of preaching and teaching. If you have a 10,000-person church, you can still only have so many people on your worship team up there using their gifts to, to help the people worship God. But if you had 100 churches of 100 people each, you could have so many people involved in worship. What about prophecy? What if you actually wanted to do what we're reading here today? How, how much prophecy would you have in that 10,000-person church? Two or three people on a Sunday, maybe 10 minutes? What if you had 100 churches of 100 people each? That's 1,000 minutes of prophecy. Two to 300 people getting up and sharing their gifts of prophecy to the people. Try having 1,000 minutes of prophecy in your megachurch. You know what will happen? Your megachurch will very quickly become a mini-church because everybody will leave. They'd be like, I can't sit here for 12 hours of prophecy. <laughs> you can't do it. You just, there just isn't as much opportunity to participate in the life of the church. This is why our, our vision, my conviction as a church, is that we would be a wonderful medium-sized church. Wow, what an incredible sounding vision. I'm going to write a book one day, The Medium-Sized Church. It's going to sell to nobody, and I'm going to have to push it on, on you guys here and say, please buy my book. But why? Our vision is to be a church that's big enough to do some of the things that the Bible talks about, like, like financially supporting the elders who labor in preaching and teaching, as the Bible talks about, big enough to experience a wide range of spiritual gifts, big enough to, to plant new churches, but, but not so big that only a few can participate and more and more people become just spectators within the church. So one application, brothers and sisters, is that if, if your mentality of church is, I, some church is something I go to and I attend. I go and I watch. It's become an event. That's a kind of Constantinian type of mode. Really, you know how we're sitting right here? And you can say, well, why are we sitting like this? And you'll see. We're sitting like this because this is how Constantine designed the church. Because he said, how do we make a church for God? Well, we make it like my throne room. I sit up here in the front on my throne and all my subjects sit out there in front of me like you guys right now. Let's do the same thing for God, right? But in the early church, it wasn't necessarily like this. I think some things might have been more circular within the homes that they met in and anyway, that there was much more participation. Why do we do things the way we do? I don't know. We're a work in progress, brothers and sisters. Um, but we want to get to this place of greater participation. Um, I want to say, too, that if you, are, if you are zooming in and watching our church, I'm so glad that you're here and you're zooming in this morning. But if you are able to, to be at a church, whether here, we would love for you to be here, or if you are in another place or state or somewhere else, to find a local church there because you just can't participate in the church in the way that God has designed um, over Zoom. 
And if you are, are medically able and it's safe for you to congregate with the church of God, I would encourage you to. We want, if you're near here, we want you to come and be with us and to participate in the church. If you don't know where to go, email us, and I will personally help you find a church near you. You just email us at info at renewalsv.org, and we will, we will help you. I will help you find a place that you can participate in. This is, this is the picture that we want to figure out how, as a body of Christ, we can move towards greater participation. Now, not only is there that participation, but Paul also is concerned about order within the church. And this is the unity aspect that I talked about before. In verse 33, he says about God, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, a God of order. That, that as much as the spiritual gifts are meant to be used here, this is not a place of anarchy and anything goes. This is not a place of charismania, as, as many churches that believe in the gifts have been uh, labeled you know, charismaniacs or whatnot, sometimes rightly. When there is no order, when things get crazy and things go out of control, that's not the picture that God paints here, but it is one of order. Look here, back in verse 26, what does Paul say? When you're doing all of these things and participating, in verse 26, let all things be done for building up. Things have to be done in a way where it helps people, it builds them up. It encourages people. It's not chaos or anarchy. This is why in 27 and 28, he says, so when you get up here and you speak in tongues, make sure that the gift of interpretation is also there that day, that it is manifested. And if you get up and you speak in tongues, and there is no interpretation, I don't know if it's like one strike and it's over, or it's like two or three go, and then there's no interpretation, and then it's over. Paul says, if there's no interpretation, be silent. Be silent. Stop getting up and speaking in tongues because it doesn't help anybody. Nobody understands what's going on. That would be disorderly. That would be confusing. God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of order and peace, a God of intelligibility. Now, he says the same thing to the prophets as well or to the people who are getting up and sharing a revelation here. He says when you get up, you know, take turns, don't hog the mic. If the spirit goes to somebody else, let that person speak as well. There is an order here, but very, very importantly here, he says, when you speak, when you give a revelation, and prophecy again, just to, as a reminder from last week, it's not saying, thus saith the Lord, like what we say is infallible, it is absolutely, without fail, the words of God. Prophecy is just reporting what God brings to mind. And, and, and sometimes we could be wrong, but it's, hey, this is what I think God is saying to us, to our church right now. That, that's what prophecy simply is, reporting what God brings to mind. Now, what does he say here? He says, when people do this, let the others weigh what is said. Let the others weigh what is said. That weighing is so important. Weighing means evaluating, sifting, discerning. When somebody shares a revelation, what they think God is saying, you don't just take it at face value, you weigh it. You weigh it. This is what 1 Thessalonians said, and I read this last week too, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test 
weigh, evaluate everything and hold fast to what is good. We are to weigh it. We don't, it, it, it's not like the, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not like, oh, God spoke, therefore, got to do it. God said, I, oh, he said, I got to marry that person. Time to go buy the ring. No, 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 no. Hold on. We weigh it. We weigh that. Does it conflict with scripture? If it does, eh, it's out. It's out. Does it, does it seem like God is leading in that direction? Does it seem good and wise to the church? The others weigh this. We are to evaluate prophecy. Um, when we don't, there's a lot of disorder, there's a lot of confusion, and there can be a lot of pain. I don't know if you saw this article just this past week in the New York Times. I don't know if you can see this. It says, he told followers to starve to meet Jesus. Why did so many do it? Uh, it was an article this past week. You can still find the New York Times. Paul McKenzie, a pastor in Kenya, said God revealed to him that the end of the world was, was imminent, was going to happen really soon. And it was going to be a lot of pain, a lot of tribulation during that time. And he wanted his followers to avoid that. So he told them to leave the city, to go out into a rural part of Kenya. And they lived out there. And he told them to starve themselves, to, to die to commit suicide by starvation so that they can avoid the pain and the tribulation that was coming with the end of the world and so that they could go and meet Jesus. How sick. And so many people died because of this so-called revelation that came to this man. Now, if we, if we listen to what Paul says in teaching of 1 Corinthians 14, and we look at the scriptures, we look at the teaching of God, we would say, God never tells somebody to inflict self-harm, let alone to kill themselves. No, God values life. Your life is a gift that God has given you. Only God gives life and God takes life away. Absolutely no. No way what this guy is saying is right. We would know from Matthew 24, Jesus said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows when he's going to return, right? The end of the world. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. God, I mean, can you imagine Jesus being like, hey, father, Paul McKenzie knows, but I don't. Are you serious? Come on, man. Give me a break, Paul McKenzie. If Jesus doesn't even know, how could you know? When we look at the scriptures, we should immediately go, that's uh -uh. anybody who tells you when the, ends, when the world is going to end doesn't know what they're talking about because it conflicts with scripture. We need to weigh prophecy. We need to weigh these revelations according to scripture and, and with the wisdom that God gives to the church to evaluate it. Let, let me, let me um, bring up this as well. And, and I say this, I want to say this sensitively and lovingly too. There are some groups out there these prophetic circles, right? Maybe you've, you've heard of these, and they, they put on big conferences where there's famous prophets, prophecy going on. When I, when I first got exposed to spiritual gifts, I got so excited about this aspect of Christian life, I started going to these conferences. Maybe some of you have gone to them too, and, and I'm sure that there are people at these conferences who love God passionately. I am sure that there are people there who are probably gifted in prophecy, 
and, and hear from the Lord and, and, and gain revelations from God. I, I don't doubt that that can happen. But based on chapter 14 here, my question is, for these prophets, which congregation, which church is weighing your prophecy? Who is weighing your revelation? The problem is sometimes these groups, they become parachurch organizations that exist outside of the church and they become uh, an authority unto themselves. Oh my gosh, prophet so-and-so said this, so-and-so. Maybe, but are they in a local church in a meaningful way and submitting their prophecies to the local church leadership there to be weighed? Is that happening? If it is, good, great, great. But if it's not, I would say, that we need to look at scripture. There are safeguards and there is an order to the way that God does things. Those prophecies need to be weighed. Those YouTubers who put their prophecies up there, are they being weighed? I would love it if those YouTubers first said, I ran this by my church. I ran this by my leadership. They believe that this is from the Lord. It doesn't conflict with scripture. And they believe that this is God's leading. And now let me share with you what I think God is saying. Hey, Mad respect, <laughs> much more respect. That disclaimer should be there on all those YouTubers for, for them. But my question is, if not, who is weighing their prophecy? What, one last thing here. Let me, let me bring another application in here. I think this is a very strong corrective and safeguard against the God told me so theology. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever encountered this, or maybe you said it yourself. I've certainly had people tell me this before, and maybe I've said it before myself in my life, where it's like, hey, Ulysses, this is what I'm, what I'm thinking about doing, and I feel like God is leading me to do X, Y, or Z. And I'm like, you know, I don't really think that's biblical. You know, I don't think that's wise. I don't think that's what God would want you to do. And then the person says, well, you know what? But God told me so. So I'm going to go do it. And at that point, what am I going to say? <laughs> God told you so. How am I going to argue with that? My only argument would be, well, God told me otherwise. <laughs> then we've got a stalemate. Who's going on here? Will the real, Slim Shady, will the real <laughs> prophet of God please stand up? You can see how ridiculous that is, but this is dangerous too. When you say, well, it doesn't matter what anybody else is saying, God told me so. No, 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 no. If God has given you a revelation, who is weighing that revelation? Which leaders, which shepherds, which people in your life are there to be able to affirm or to say careful or to say that clearly conflicts with scripture? That's not wise. Are we humble enough to submit these revelations to be weighed by the church? And Paul was was really putting these prophets in Corinth in, in their place who thought, well, I'm speaking in behalf of God. No, 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 no. It needs to be weighed. You are not a law unto yourself. This is not the Wild West. Now, as a church too, we need to be careful with this. We need to be careful uh, you know, to, to discern when we need to say, hey, that's, that's unbiblical. That's really unwise. You shouldn't do that. When it's a time to say something like that, and when it's just maybe my preference or the church's preference, right? And, and we need to discern that and be careful about that because when we make our preference the law, then we become kind of cultish and weird, right? We need to know as we're weighing, 
to be able to say, yeah, that, that's against scripture. You shouldn't do that. Versus, you know, I'm not quite sure about that. Why don't you pray some more, see how God is leading you? But maybe, maybe. And we need to be wise about how this is done. But definitely the whole God told me so philosophy. If that's going on in your heart, if there are things in your life that people have told you, I don't know about that, and you have just gone ahead and barreled ahead, I would ask you to consider letting others weigh that. You know, our flesh can be really deceitful. As, as the Bible says, our, it, our, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who, who can understand it? Itching ears hear what they want to hear. That happens all the time. That's why God gives us the church. Anybody who is disconnected from the church and says, God is leading me, that is a very dangerous situation indeed. That is not how God works. Now, getting into the second part of verse 33 and 35, let me just say off the bat that these are very, very challenging verses. Uh, There has been no shortage of ink spilled about what's going on here by many brilliant theologians who love God, who end up with different views on this. So let me just say that, first of all, humbly, I've read a good amount of stuff. I've not read everything out there, but, but I, I do have my convictions about what's going on here that I do want to present to you. First, let me say here, Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints. So uh, what, what he's talking about here is not something that is localized. Oh, that's, um, what, what he's talking about with women and men there, that's just a Corinth thing. But, but that's, that's, that was something specific to what was going on there but that's not how all the church is supposed to take what Paul is saying here. No, he says, as in all the churches of the saints, there is some universal teaching that he is about to get into here. What does he say? He says, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Wow, okay. What is Paul talking about there? Are we saying that women of renewal, when you walk in the doors of this building, as soon as you get, oh, zip it, zip it. No more talking? Absolutely not, absolutely not. Why, why why would you say no, Ulysses? I I don't know, maybe there are churches that believe that. Because we need to let scripture interpret scripture. You cannot take one verse or two verses out of the Bible and say, ah, see, this is what it says, this is what we need to do. If we did that, we'd be baptizing the dead, right? As, as the Bible says in other places, we'd, we'd be baptizing people on behalf of the dead. What's going on there, right? We need to look at the whole Bible to understand what's going on here. So what do we see? Just three chapters earlier, what does Paul say? But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, there's a lot going on there. If you weren't here several weeks ago, please go listen to that message and the whole message about head coverings. And there's a lot going on there. But, but my point is, Paul is clearly recognizing that when the church gets together, women, men and women, pray in public. Women will get up and pray in behalf of the church. And men and women will say amen to those prayers. Not only that, Paul says, women will get up and prophesy to the church. 
They will get up and say, this is what I believe God is putting on my heart. God may be saying this. Let me, let me share this with you. Now, that, that's incredible because compared to the Judaism of Paul's day, when the Spirit of God came upon the people and the church was born, there was this it, the Spirit moving in men and women in powerful ways, and, and women ministered in incredible ways within the church, were a vibrant, vibrant part of the church. So unless Paul got really confused here, he's absolutely not talking about utter, utter, abject silence. We look at Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, what does Peter say? Peter explains to the crowd what's happening. He says it's the fulfillment of the prophet Joel, his prophecy, and he quotes from Joel where it says, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Men and women, the spirit of God will be moving through powerfully to even prophesy, to hear from the Lord and to minister. One more, there are more others, but one more. In Acts chapter 21, uh, we see Philip the evangelist and it says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now that's, now that's clearly not talking about them being like in Philip's backyard and just prophesying on their own. It's like, hey, this is what God says to you, my sister. Now it's your turn. Tell me what God says to me. Let's just go. Now your turn, my turn, your turn. No, this is the church. They were obviously prophesying within the context of the church. That's where they were, they were utilizing their gifts. So, this is when some people say, ah, exactly. You see? So what Paul's saying here in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is so contradictory, this can't be right. Um, some even argue that this is what the theologians call interpolation, meaning somebody else added this in here. This is not actually Bible. It's a mistake. It doesn't belong here. Now, that, that's, um, well, one, one tough thing about that is as far as I know, in all the important ancient manuscripts, these verses are there, right? So there's, there's no kind of like, well, half the old fragments that we found have it and half don't, and let's kind of like argue about that. It's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty strong case that the, the, the important texts all have this within it. Um, uh, some people also say, you know, oh, not only are there contradictions, look, it doesn't even fit the flow of chapter 14. Paul's talking about tongues and prophecy and all this kind of stuff, and, and he concludes with that in the, in the verses after this. Why is he suddenly inserting the stuff about women in here? Somebody else added this in. This is not from the Bible. Well, um, if I could here, and, and there are many theologians who have written about this. <laughs> this is not new to me. But actually, I think if we, if we really dive into these passages, the passage here and, and what Paul is saying here, actually, I, I don't think Paul is contradicting himself. And, and I think actually that what's happening here fits into the flow of this chapter really, really well, actually. First, when it says here, for they're not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says, one question is, what law? What is Paul referring to here when he says, this is what the law says? Well, I think he's referring back to Genesis, chapter one, chapter two, to God's design for all creation. Where, where it says in chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. What, is, what does he say there? God made man 
in woman. God made husband and wife. We see in chapter 2 that it says God made man first, and then he, he said it's not good for man to be alone, and he made Eve to be a helpmate for him, and together they were to um, fulfill fill the earth, to multiply and to fill the earth there, that there was an order there in creation. But we see in Genesis 1 as well that God says that he made both men and women in his image. So what does all this together mean? That there is a design within creation, that God made men and women different, that they are not the same, that there are different roles within creation. But at the same time, men and women are of equal worth and value before God because both have been created in his image in a way that animals have not been, plants have not been, only men and women have been creating the image of God, and both are of equal, fully equal value before the Lord. Women are not less than men, men are not less than women, both are equal before God, but he has created them in different ways and with different roles. We see that not only in Genesis 2, but Paul in Ephesians 5, when he's talking about marriage, what does he say there when he talks about marriage? He says, referring back to Genesis, that God brought two together, two shall become one, and he said that this refers to Christ and the church. Now, I don't have time to go into all this. I've preached about this more in the past, but what he's saying is that it's not about value, but human marriage, the husband and wife, when it, God has designed it in such a way to be a signpost to this world of what it looks like to be in relationship with God. Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. Christ leads the church and lays his life down in love for the church and serves the church. And the church respects and follows Christ, the bridegroom. The church is the bride. And he says that in marriage, we are to represent and reflect this as well. That men, the husbands, are to be the servant leaders of the relationship, laying down their lives for their wives to serve them. And wives are to respect uh, the leadership of their husbands and to come and compliment them in ways that they, they need, that God has designed. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul also says, well, the church also, the church the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So what he's kind of you know, analogizing here is saying that just like in marriage, there is a role between a husband and wife, the church is like the spiritual family of God as well. And here within the church, there are certain roles too. And earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he talks about elders and how elders should be biblically qualified men according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And, and there are these connect. This is, this is the design. This is the law that Paul is referring to here. What he's saying is that there is a design within creation. I know that this is not a popular message here in the Bay Area or maybe in, even in the Western world nowadays, but I do believe that if this is what God is teaching, that when we live according to the design of God, it is beautiful, it is meaningful, and it brings glory to God when it is lived out in the right way, in a loving way. So with, with this in mind, with this in mind, let me just point out here the flow of chapter 14 and what I think Paul is, is saying here that people have pointed out. When Paul says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said, there's two things going on here that he's addressing. First, 
how do the prophets speak? Second, that their speaking should be weighed. What happens after verse 29 is he expounds upon verse 29, these two halves, in the next verses. Verses 30 through, through 33a refers to how the speaking is done, how it should be done. Um, take turns, no more than two or three. If somebody else stands up with something to say, the first one stops. This is how the speaking is to be done. The spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. That means nobody is there supposed to go, I see you, Bob, standing up wanting to say something, but the spirit is so strong in me, I can't stop prophesying, so you have to sit back down until I'm done. That's, that's just disorder, this confusion. Paul says, no, your spirit is subject to you. You can sit on down. You can let Bob talk. Right? So the first part here, he says, how do prophets speak? The second part there refers to how the prophecies are weighed, how they are weighed. And that's where he gets into the role of women and men in the church. And so what he's saying here is not women in the church, you can't speak. Absolute silence. No, absolutely not. What he's talking about is silence, submission in terms of the evaluation of prophecies. That's what he's talking about. Now, that's not very satisfying, right? (laughs) Well, okay, okay, but why? Ulysses, why does Paul say that the women should not be involved in the evaluation of prophecy? Why? Because, this is what I believe, because when you, now, now prophecy is not teaching. Prophet, you're not supposed to teach when you prophesy. You're supposed to just report what God told you and not get into a 30-minute sermon on it, right? Nobody's supposed to. You're supposed to just say, this is what I saw, this is what I felt from the Lord, and you report it. That's it. Now, when you evaluate, when you weigh the prophecy, you get into, I believe, church authority, teaching. You get into a different realm. The realm of what I really believe is what the elders should be doing, right? Elders, who Paul says, according to 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 and on, should be men within the church. So, because you hear a prophecy, what are you supposed to do? You know what? I don't think that's scriptural. Based upon Matthew chapter 24, we don't know when the end of the world is going to come. That's not, that's not correct. Or, or, you know what? I, I think that that is actually what God is saying to our church. I feel that way. The elders, we're in agreement about that. We sense the Lord moving through that, and we should move the church in that direction. We should respond to God in that way as a church. I think what is happening here is the weighing of prophecy is seen as something that should um, that should be an act of judgment, evaluation. Uh, I know judgment sounds harsh, but evaluation, something that the leaders of the church should be doing. They should be the ones making the call about that. And as I've shared before, as I mentioned earlier, I believe that there is this design within not only marriage, but within the church as well. And I believe that the church is to be led by biblically qualified men as elders. I think this is what Paul is saying here. I think this is what Paul's point is, referring to the weighing of prophecies. Now, you say, well, what about that part? If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. It is shameful for women to speak in church. What, what, I mean, what if I'm not married? What if I'm single? How does all of this work? It just, it just brings up so many questions, right? And hey, I, I don't know if I've got all this right, 
I'm still learning as well. But I think, I think Paul's main point here is not about married women or single women or anything like that. Paul's main point is about who should be evaluating prophecy in the gathered assembly of the church. And I would say at the end of the day, it is the, the elders. Now, this is, this is really tricky, tricky stuff. This is, this is difficult stuff to sift through. Um, you know, for me, as, as I'm a pastor and an elder of Renewal Church, wh- where are we landing with this? If we were to be together and we were to be listening for the Lord and somebody shares a prophetic word or what they think might be a prophetic word, I, I personally would be okay with men and women, with everybody, maybe chiming in about how they felt about that. You may say, oh, you listen, that's unbiblical. <laughs> you know? um, I would say, though, that at the end of the day, me as an elder um, and the elder board, I know we have a provisional elder board right now, but one day an internal elder board as well, we're the ones that are going to make the final decision about, do we think that that prophecy is from the Lord or not? So I'm okay with everybody sharing or chiming in if we do that, as long as the elders, the shepherds are the one who make the final call about whether this is from the Lord or not. Now, that's, that's where I'm landing on this. Again, I, I could be wrong about this. There's just a lot of trickiness here going on. If you, as you study, if you see things that you think are very interesting or insightful, please come and share with me. I am not invested in being wrong. And I think sometimes scripture takes a lot of study to figure out what's going on here. But let me, let me make the main point here that I think um, is really important for us to get. If we take these verses wrong, they can actually wrongly hinder women from participating in the life of the church. And some churches may do that, and I think that's wrong. Some churches may say women can't speak. Be totally silent or whatever. I think that's wrong. And it's going to hinder the participation of women praying, prophesying, whatever it might be. And, And that's a tragedy. That's a huge loss for the sake of the church. At the same time, too, I unapologetically believe that God created men and women different, with different roles, within marriage, within the church, and it's a beautiful thing unto the glory of God that it's not about our value or our worth, it's about the Lord and bringing him glory and reflecting the love of Christ for the church to this world. And when we get to heaven, there will be no marriage. There will will be no more sign that we need to show to the world because we will all be face-to-face with our bridegroom, with Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is what I think Paul is saying here. Um, let, me, let me just emphasize here. L- listen, lest we think that Paul is this hard-nosed, uh, you know, uh, misogynist-type person. He's such a chauvinist or whatnot. You look, let, me, let me just read to you some verses here from the end of chapter Roman, end of Romans chapter 16. And just listen to Paul as he speaks about women in his life. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kencre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, 
my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Verse six, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Trephena and Trephosa, two women as well. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Verse 15, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. We can see in the life of Paul the important place that so many women played, that co-labored alongside him, that, that risked their necks for his own life that the churches were indebted to. And brothers and sisters, I got to say, you know, I am so, so thankful for all the women in our church. For so many of you who have been with us from day one of building this church, of how when we met in our sister Kitu's apartment before we officially became a church, and we were meeting there as a small group getting ready to launch, and then how we moved into Taekwon Kids, the Taekwondo studio. And so many of you women were there with us. You came from Radiance and you started the church together with us. And all along the way, six years, you've served, you volunteered. You've led community groups. You've led teams and ministries. You've served in so many amazing ways. And I, I, and I mean this with all of my heart. This church would not be here without you. It would not be here without you because God has designed the church that every part of the body, men and women, are needed to build up the body of Christ in a beautiful way to reflect who God is. And I'm so thankful to call you co-laborers in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful for all the women in our church. Brothers, these verses should never be taken as a, a reason to be chauvinistic, misogynistic. That would be so against. That would cause confusion and disorder. That would grieve the heart of God. But like Paul in Romans 16 these women around us who serve the Lord with all their heart are to be respected with all of our hearts, to be elevated, to be respected for what they do and how they co-labor alongside us and work so hard unto the glory. I mean, I, I, yesterday I went out to uh, uh, the food pantry ministry that we had, and we have wonderful people leading, Chris and Stephanie and, and Ender, and then I saw Amy Tang there, so pregnant out there running around leading and doing stuff so pregnant so big out there running and serving pouring out her heart and her life for that ministry women like her and so many i can't i can't list all of you my wife well, she's not here she's in the back i can't list them all but do so much in being co-laborers and building up this church our church would not be here if it weren't for the way that god has used both men and women in renewal Brothers, can I hear a hearty amen? amen? No, 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 brothers. After I say that, can I hear a hearty amen? amen? Thank you, thank you. That's even still not that great, but we'll get there. This is Silicon Valley. I know, I understand. Let me, let me, close, let me, let me close with this by sharing, again, this unity and diversity, this participation in order. You say, Ulysses, that's, you know, do we do that as a church? You've been up there talking for 45 minutes. 
Where's this participation? You know, um, this is going to take time, but my heart is that we as a church would pursue this. We'll pursue what the biblical church looks like. I just want to share with you what we did in our prayer meeting this past Tuesday, just a few days ago. Because of the earlier part of chapter 14, about tongues and interpretation and prophecy and that being a blessing to the church, we're at prayer meeting, and I said, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray for a little bit. And then if anybody feels like you may have the gift of tongues moving within you, and maybe there's something that God wants to say to the church through you, to the gathered community through you, I'm going to invite you up to come to the mic and pray in tongues. And I said, if nobody comes up, I will come up and I'll just pray in tongues. And I was sweating. Oh man, I've never done anything like this before. I was sweating. And then after we prayed for a minute or two, nobody came up. I wasn't really surprised by that. Nobody came up. So I had to put my money where my mouth was and and I went up to the microphone and I prayed in tongues for, I don't know, 20 seconds or 30 seconds. I I just did it. And then I said, hey, if there's anybody here who feels like the gift of inter- the Holy Spirit may be manifesting himself in interpretation, like you have a sense of what that means, you feel free to just come on up. I said that before, so I prayed in tongues, and then when I walked to the side, right away, one sister basically ran up to the microphone, and she said, when you prayed in tongues, my heart was beating so, so fast, and, and, and she just felt like she knew what it was, and she began to pray. She prayed. And I was just like in shock. (laughs) She she began to pray, and and I'm not going to get into all of it, but she said, one thing she said is, I I saw a picture of a lion. A lion. And and in the Bible, you may know, a lion uh, represents the lion of Judah. It represents the kingly, the kingship, the kingly aspect of God. And she, she was praying that stuff about that. And as she said that and was praying, as soon as she said she saw an image of a lion, immediately in my heart, in my spirit, I don't know how or why, it struck me so hard, I was like, that's right. That's from God. I, don't, I can't explain it. I just felt it so strong. That is from the Lord. I didn't know this, but later on, after we had finished our prayer meeting, another sister I found out also at the same time saw a picture of a lion. Okay. And to me, I felt like that was confirmation. That was more of me being able to weigh things. And so what happened? I came back up to the microphone after this sister shared about what she saw and she prayed. And I said, let us join in this prayer. Let us declare amen together as 1 Corinthians 14 says. So I said, let's pray together now. If that, I believe that's what God is saying. If that's what God is saying, let's pray. Let's get on our knees and let's lay down our crowns. Anything in our life in which we have not let God be king. And I felt like that was so right. That that's what God wanted us to do. And maybe it's what he still wants us to do right now to the whole church. I don't know. But we were there and we were praying. I felt the spirit of God moving. I think I don't know about you, but a lot of people who were there, it felt like God met us that night. Something powerful happened. I felt it. I think a lot of people felt it. And then, so I went up there to say, I I think this is what God is saying. I was doing the weighing as an elder. 
And then that other sister who said later she saw the same picture, for me, it brought more confirmation to my weighing. It led me to want to even bring this to you this morning, as I think that is what God was saying. That's what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. We're learning. We're trying to grow in this. We're trying to participate. But let me just say this as we close. I want to invite the worship team up at this time. If that, if that is what God was saying to us, and I think it was, maybe it was for more than just the 30 people at our prayer meeting. Maybe it was for our whole church here right now, if that's how God wants us to pray. And I just want to invite you to heed that prayer. Can we just stand together right now as we respond? I want to invite you this morning. Is there, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He is king. He didn't just die to save us. He also died so that we could be his servants and he could be our king and our Lord. I want to challenge you. Is there anything in your life this morning, any area where you have not submitted to the lordship, to the kingship of Christ, whether it's in your, your career, the direction of your life, your finances, your relationships, whatever it might be, maybe saying, maybe, maybe it's you saying, well, God told me so, and learning to submit to the weighing of the church. That's submitting to the kingship of Christ because that's Christ's design for the church. Whatever it might be, I want to invite you right now to pray and to say amen together with that prayer. Can we do that for, for a minute or two right now before we respond in worship? Can we just come? Let's pray. Let us be able to declare amen together to that and say, Lord, cleanse my heart. I lay my crown before you. If you need to just, if you want to come down to the front and kneel before the Lord up here, feel free to do that. Can we just come right now and just declare, Lord, you are king. Forgive me, God, for any ways in which I have been king over any aspect of my life. Lord, you are the Lion of Judah, and I submit my life to you. Let's pray, and let's respond to that right now for a minute or two. Can we? Let's pray.